Well, this morning we are uh, moving on through our study of the book of Job, one of the Bible's wisdom books about life in the world, about how to understand who we are, what God has made us to be, what it's like to live in the world as it is, not the world that we wish that it were. Job is one of the Bible's most beautiful books in any genre, but an incredible part of wisdom literature because Job pulls no punches holds nothing back in recognizing, in labeling, and admitting that the world is past our ability to understand. That much happens to us that makes no sense to us. Job is a book about the reality of evil in the world, of innocent suffering in the world. Job is about what we know from experience. That there is suffering that just doesn't make sense. We know that miscarriages come to parents who long for children. And that disabled children are born to parents who didn't want them, who abused drugs and gave them to the care of the state. We know those two things happen in the same world. We know, I, I was just been praying, we know that just barely two weeks ago, not even two weeks ago, nine innocent people sitting in Bible study were shot down for no reason but the skin they were born with. They were innocent. Maybe this morning you think that this problem, the problem of innocent suffering, is a problem that Christians have no choice but to shrink back from. It is often posed to Christians, isn't it? How can you believe in a God who would let these things happen? A God who is powerful enough to do what he wants. Who's supposed to be loving, but who lets people get shot over Bible study. It might surprise you, if that's what you think. It might surprise you to know that the Bible doesn't shrink back, but presses in. And that's nowhere more clear in all of the Bible than in the book of Job. The whole book is about this question. How? Can God allow the world to be what we know it is? Job begins with a story. A story of a man who was wise, who was good. He wasn't perfect, he wasn't sinless, but he lived as a sinful person ought to live, recognizing it, confessing it, fearing the Lord in the midst of it. Job lived the life he was called to by God. And he was enjoying the benefits that wisdom says that kind of person should enjoy. He had it all. He had money. He had possessions. He had a great family. He had a good life. And then he lost everything. And it wasn't his fault. Most of the book, what we talked about the last couple of weeks, most of the book is Job wrestling with what had happened to him, trying to find some sort of insight into it. It's a conversation between Job's friends who think they see everything really clearly and Job who knows that it just doesn't make sense and he won't accept any of their cheap, trite answers. All through that conversation, Job keeps coming back to one theme over and over again. His theme, what he wants, is to hear from God. He wants to know why. And at the very end of the book, in two speeches that we're going to consider this week and next week, God speaks to him. 
The first speech comes out in Job chapter 38 and 39. That's where we camp this morning. But the place to begin, the place to begin is with Job's longing. Just to remind you of where Job was when God spoke to him. It's his appeal to God that sets the stage for God's reply. To get to his longing, I want to begin by reading a few verses from chapter 29. Job chapter 29. I'm going to invite you now, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. Here's what Job says as he begins his summary defense of his innocence to God. Job says this. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet within me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out streams of oil. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This is the beginning of Job's final defense, closing arguments. After several cycles of Job speaking to his friends and to God and about God, we get here, chapters 29 to 31, where Job summarizes what he said and lays it out for God to respond. He begins here with nostalgia. He begins with what all of us have experienced anytime we've lost something beautiful. We've tried to place ourselves back before it happened. Back when things were the way they were. We've longed for and imagined that we still lived then. To be as if this awful thing had never happened. Oh, that I was in my prime, Job says. Back then, the rest of chapter 29 says, back then, I had the respect of young and old. Everybody loved Job. Back then, I used my influence, Job says, to help the poor. I helped the orphan. I helped the widow who had nowhere else to go. Back then, Job says, verses 16 and 17, I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of those who I didn't even know. I broke the fangs of unrighteousness, he said. He used his power to crush those who would crush the weak. He was a good man, not perfect, but upright. He was a model citizen and a wise leader. And what Job expected from his life in those days was what we should expect. If Proverbs is true, Here's what he says in verses 18 to 20. Then I thought, then in those days I thought, I'll die in my rest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to waters. In other words, I'll always have what I need to flourish and be strong. With the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever knew in my, my bow ever knew in my hand. That's what Job expected. What we know comes out in chapter 30, verses 16 to 21. Now, that was then, 
Now, Job says, my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. The pain that gnaws me takes no rest. God has cast me into the mire, verse 19 says, and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you, God, for help, and you don't answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. So in chapter 31, Job finally invites God to do his worst. He said, here's what's happened. First, chapter 31 says, show me what I did wrong and I'll eat it all. One after another example he gives. Show me where I've done this bad thing and take it all away. Show me where I've done that. Take it all away. Look how it starts in verse 5. If I've walked with falsehood, this is chapter 31, and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance. Let God know my integrity. Here I am. My life's an open book. If I've been false, if my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. Let others bow down on her, for that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root all my increase. These are vivid images. Job is saying, if I've done wrong, do your worst. One after another, he gives these examples through chapter 31, building all the way to the end of the chapter when he says this, verses 35 to 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. He's signing the final brief. This is my life as I see it. Show me where I'm wrong. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, God, tell me what I did wrong. Make your charges against me. Give me some sort of insight. Verse 37, Job says, I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. There it is. Job wants to hear from God. He wants to come to God. He wants what every one of us has wanted before and every one of us will want again. He wants to know why. And he's willing to come to God to do it. He's willing to stake his innocence. That's what Job wanted. Chapters 38 and 39 show us what God actually gave him. Job claim to be ready to approach the Almighty, but it is God who comes to him. Job rests his case in chapter 31. God answers him, skipping right past another friend who speaks into Job's condition. Skipping right past that friend, God answers Job directly in chapter 38. He comes to him in the whirlwind, in the storm, and he says to him, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known. Job finally gets his answer, but it is not the answer he was hoping for. Job wants to be examined. He wants his life picked apart. He wants an explanation for why his details, why his personal experience is what it is. But God responds to him with a two-chapter poem about the beauty, the power, the complexity, and the wildness of nature. Here's how one writer put, describes these chapters that come. These chapters, Gordas writes, are among the greatest nature poetry in world literature. Their purpose, however, their purpose is not the glorification of nature, but the vindication of nature's God. And we want to see these images for what they are. Most of the rest of our time this morning, we're going to let them hit us like they would have hit Job. Just go down the list one by one to see what God says. And then at the end, once we've absorbed all of the information as God presents it to Job, we'll come back to the question of how this helps us. How is this an answer to Job? How is it an answer to us? Now let's let the text stand on its own. Let's just enter these images together. They're incredible. Chapter 38, the first half of the first speech that God gives to Job. Chapter 38 is mostly images about the vastness and complexity of the universe. It it starts with the world itself. God says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This begins a process where God almost envisioning the engineering of a building. Starts with the foundation, then measures out all the right distances. Verse 5, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Imagine a guy, what are those, I'm not a construction guy, but you know they have those things with the powder inside the string and you stretch it out and you pop the powder down and then you know where to hit hit your nails. Who's, does that make sense? Okay, you guys are with me. Who stretched out this line upon it? Who put the level on it to make sure that it, was square, that, it, that it was nice and flat? On what were its bases sunk? The building process continues. Who laid its cornerstone to make it all fit together? Where were you, Job, when that happened? Underneath it is a question. Can you explain why the world is what it is? What is the reason that there is something and not Nothing. Is that something you have insight into, Job? Were you there? Next, he moves on to one of the world's great powers, the power of the sea. Picks up in verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors? Few things are more powerful in our experience than, than water. You think about hurricanes and tsunamis, those are the obvious examples, but even the power of a slow Steady drip from a leaky faucet over the years can wear a hole into concrete. In the ancient world, water, especially the sea, it was associated with darkness and chaos, with evil. And honestly, honestly, even, even in our time, who among us hasn't sat 
looking at the ocean, feeling small. And God says, who shut in the sea with doors? Next, he starts to picture it like a baby, delivered to him, cared for, bounded by him. Who was there when the sea burst out from the womb, he says. When I made clouds its garment, I gave it its first onesie. Who was there when I made thick darkness its diaper, its swaddling band? Who prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? Who put the baby gate between the door? Who put it, the sea, into its pack and play where it couldn't hurt itself? Who made these limits? Who said to the sea, thus far you shall come, little one, and no farther? And here shall your proud waves be stayed. You're not as big as you think you are. Next he moves to the morning. Who have you commanded the morning since your days began? Verse 12. Calls the dawn to know its place. Are you the one who gives birth to each new day? Here he's not, he's not making a statement about the physics involved. He's making a statement that he's behind the physics involved. That no morning ever dawns. That didn't dawn because God said that it would. Because God upheld it. Gave it its birth. In other words, do you keep everything operating, Job? Are you the reason things aren't falling apart? Next he moves to the vastness of the universe. These are some of my favorite images. Have you, verse 16 says, entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Do you have any idea, friends, how deep the ocean actually is? We, I don't, not, not in a concrete way. I haven't been down there. But, but at, at our house, one of the big hits has been with our boys, uh, some of the BBC uh, documentaries, uh, especially Planet Earth and, and this one series called Blue Planet about the oceans. They can't get enough of it. And some of these episodes are about the deep seas. They call the deep seas the great unexplored frontier on the, in our world. Most of it hasn't even been charted, hasn't been seen. They they keep zooming in with these amazing submarines on these creatures that you've never seen before. They're bizarre looking, weird translucent fins coming out from all sorts of weird jaws with strange teeth. These things are bizarre. And oftentimes when they zoom in on one, they'll say, and here, in in a British accent, I won't try to replicate. Here, for the first time, we're seeing this creature. They don't even have a name for it. No one had seen it before they took their cameras down there. And they haven't even charted most of what's down there. These creatures, in other words, the recesses of the deep, where Job had not been, where we have not been, they exist whether we recognize them at all. They're completely independent of us. The world is not about us. Have you been to the recesses of the deep, he asked him. How about verse 17? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Death is one of the fundamental human realities. Everybody dies. It is an experience, one of the few that unites all of us everywhere. But who has ever lived to tell about it? It's a powerful statement, isn't it? That one of the few things we all experience we know nothing about. Job had you? Do you know what's on the backside of death? Have you comprehended this expanse of the earth? Now we've made a lot of progress, much more than over the deep seas. We do know what's 
on the expanse of the earth. That statement doesn't ring true for us now in the same way that it did to them. But have you ever stood in a place where it's just wide open and nothingness? Where you could look and without tr- somewhere out like the American West, you can look and see all the way to the horizon with nothing blocking you in all directions and realize just how small you are and just how no matter what Google Images can do for you on your iPhone to show you what things look like in Malaysia when you're standing in Arizona, this world is huge and you won't ever see the whole of it. Verse 19 takes him into the dwelling place of the light. Are you the reason there's light? Do you know where it comes from? Darkness? Verse 22 takes us from looking around and looking down at the depths, looking around at the expanse to looking up. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? In in this poetic imagery, he's imagining the skies and the clouds as big storehouses that open their doors and send down what they have on God's command. Have you, Job, entered up there? Do you have anything to do with when it snows or hails? With when it rains, verses 25 to 27. 22 to 24, about the destructive power of what comes from above. Verses 25 to 27 refers to, and really through verse 30, refers to rain that comes to nourish the land, to bring, even, he even brings rain on land where there's nobody to enjoy it, on the deserts. Verse 26, where there's no man, just to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the ground sprout with grass. I'm upholding, I am nourishing things that aren't about you. Much more quickly, chapter 39 moves from the rain and the snow and the hail and the stars of verses 31 to 30. In chapter 38, all the bigness of the universe that Job can't even get his mind around moves from that to the wildness of the animal kingdom. From the bigness of the universe to the wildness of the creatures that are in it. And every time, the emphasis is on the fact that these are creatures that Job can't understand fully, he certainly can't control, and he certainly can't provide for. Starts with the image of a hunter giving prey for the lion. Verse 39, can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or wait in their thicket? Again, we're back into the world of the BBC Nature Show. The little cuddly sweet baby lions, everybody wants them to survive. They know it's a rough world out there, but you know what that's got to mean, don't you? It means the mama lion's got to go out and tear up some poor defenseless little deer. Can you be the one to give food to that lion? Do you have the stomach for what it's going to take to make that lion grow and thrive? Not only do I have the power, would you even want to? Like we're all mixed up in our emotions when we see these animals getting devoured so that one has to be destroyed so that another one can survive. We're not in a position to make those decisions. We couldn't. That's his point. The beginning of chapter 39 takes us to the times. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Can you watch over them while their young ones become strong? Grow up in the open? Go out and do not return to them? In other words, the universe operates all of its little minute processes 
just in the animal world alone, have times that I have established. I know the best timing for things. You can't imagine it. And if I, if I know the best timing for the mountain goats to give birth, I know the best timing for the things that happen to you in your life. That's the implication. Now to some really interesting creatures, the wild donkey and the wild ox. Verse 5 of chapter 39 says, Who's let the wild donkey go free? Who's loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. What's with the wild donkey? Here's a guy who just exists for the fun of existing. He's just wild. He's just out there where nobody is. God put him exactly where he wanted him. He gives him the things he needs to survive and he turns him loose to have fun. Job, can you go catch him, hook him up to your cart and drive him like you drive a common donkey around the streets of your city? You can't. You know why, Job? He's not controllable by you. He's not even there for you. His existence isn't about you. Same thing for the wild ox that comes next. Is the wild ox, Job, willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great and will leave and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he'll return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? No, he won't. A wild ox in the ancient world was a terrifying creature. It meant death to come face to face with him. There was no taming them. Job would have known that. The last couple of animals, and the next one in particular, it doesn't even come with questions. It's just God riffing on the amazing weirdness of the world that he's made. The wild ostrich, who goes to all the trouble of laying eggs, only to scatter them on the ground and let them get trampled. Forgetting that a foot may crush them, verse 15, and the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they weren't hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. God gets to decide if this animal's going to be dumb. But you know what? Here's the kicker. She may be dumb, but she can outrun a horse and his rider. She can't fly. Her wings are just sort of flapping around looking pretty. But when the time comes, she can outrun even the horse and his rider, verse 18 says. Speaking of horses, verses 19 to 25, celebrate the horse and his might. The war horse that, that was, the, as one put it, the nuclear weapon of his day. To have a horse to ride into battle on against people who were on foot was to have an, an incredible advantage. These horses were huge. They were powerful and wild. They were beautiful. Who gave them what they have? if not God. Surely by now we understand where God's coming from when in verse 2 of chapter 40 he says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. That's an incredible passage. There are a few passages in the Bible anything like this one. But what's the point? What's the purpose? Did you notice he didn't even give Job what he asked for? 
He never mentions Job's guilt or innocence. We know that God knows he's innocent, but God doesn't tell Job that he knows that. He doesn't even pull back the curtain to show Job what we know about what's happened. We as the readers saw the conversation between God and Job's adversary who wanted to prove Job's faith wasn't genuine. We got to see that this is a a forum on the worthiness of God who can satisfy his children even when they have nothing else. Job doesn't get to see that. God doesn't bring him in. Job wanted to know why God did what he did to Job's life, and God doesn't answer him. He brushes the questions aside. But, friends, but he does not change the subject. He brushes the questions aside, but he doesn't change the subject. He is speaking directly to Job's questions about how to cope in a wise way with the fact that this world is not what it ought to be. Ultimately, this response is helpful to us, to Job and to us. I want to point you to three ways you can think about this afternoon and pray through this week. Three ways to close that God's answer, His term-shifting answer, is helpful to us. First, God's speech to Job helps us embrace our limits. It's one of the main themes of wisdom. It's all over Proverbs. What is it to be wise? Where does it begin? What's the foundation of it? The fear of the Lord. Recognizing that there's a difference between God and us. Recognizing and reverencing the gap between what God sees and what we see. Between what God can command and what we can command. Between what God wants and what we want. And recognizing our job is to align ourselves with Him. God's speech helps us. Job was challenging God that what he didn't that, that 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 what he could see didn't add up and asking God to give an account. He was very very close to passing judgment on God based on what he can see. But God answers him not by explaining himself, not even by expanding what Job can see, but by reminding him that he sees very very little where God sees all. I don't know where this analogy came from. Certainly not from me, but it's helpful, I think. And have you ever heard of the analogy of a person who loses his keys at night and chooses to look for them under the lamppost because that's where he can see, but without any real reason to believe that that's where the keys are in the first place? Why are you looking under the lamppost? Well, I can see over here. I don't see the keys, but I can see at least. Did you drop them over there? I don't know where I dropped them, but I can see over here. I'm going to stay in the light that I can see. Surely the keys are here where I can see them. If they aren't here where I can see them, then do they even really exist? I think Job is trying, God is trying to help Job recognize that, that to insist on finding what you're looking for in the light that you have with no reason to expect it to be there is to be a fool. What he's reminding Job is that for a human not to understand or control, for a human not to understand or to control all of the vast forces that bear down on his habitat, it's normal, not unusual. That you not seeing what affects you is normal. 
That's the difference between humans and God. It's the key to what it means to fear the Lord. And the best thing for us, what God's speech is trying to help Job do, is embrace his limits and let God be God. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn, the second way that God's speech helps us is it helps us trust in his sovereignty. The point of this passage and all of its celebration of God controlling the things that we can't control is to tell Job and to tell us that there is nothing in this world not anywhere in its expanse, not anywhere in its depths, not anywhere in the heights. There is nothing in this world that doesn't answer to him, that isn't controlled by him, mastered by him, designed by him. Even evil in a way that mysterious, that in, a, in a mystery that goes past what we can see, even evil like the ocean goes only as far as God will allow. That's what the speech says. He doesn't explain to Job why he allowed awful things to happen to him, but, but his picture of control over the uncontrollable is meant to make this point, friends. That God knows what God is doing even though we can't understand what God is doing. That our pain is part of the story that God is writing. Controlled by His hand. Written under His pen and turned ultimately to good for us and for his glory. I once heard of a pastor comforting uh, a a friend from their church who had just experienced a terrible loss, a loved one who had been killed in a car accident. Horrible thing to experience, horrible thing to pastor someone through. And his response to this friend was understandable. Knowing that God was on the line here, that God was involved here. His answer to the friend was to say something like, God wishes that he could have stopped this accident. God is as broken by the accident as you are. Wishes that he could have stopped it, but he couldn't. I realize there's a subjective comfort in that response. That comes from a very good place. But, but that response just doesn't square with the images of Job 38 and 39. And ultimately, friends, it can't compare to the comfort, the real comfort, that comes when we view sovereignty and our pain in the world in light of Jesus. That's the, that's the third thing, third and final thing. How does this speech help us? It helps us to savor God's love for us in Christ. How? It doesn't mention Jesus anywhere. What, what it does say is that this is a God who's got far more on his mind than me and my problems. And in, in saying that, it can almost paint a picture of God as a boy who's toying with a frog or some such, who for whom this creature and its experiences aren't important. Job isn't giving us anything explicit to take away the possibility that God is like that. Read read in a very very narrow way, the speech could add to that sense you might have been getting from Job as it builds. And it's a disorienting sense. Can I depend on God or not? But I think the speech 
picture of the bigness of God who controls all sets us up to understand what, especially if you were raised in a Christian context, may by now be far too familiar to you. To understand the message that this God, this one, the one described here, this God took on human flesh, endured every pain that any human ever could, bore that pain in his own body on the tree, died to wipe clear every sin behind every pain that's ever been experienced and rose again to give life to anyone who would trust in him. The message of the incarnation is the message of this God, unmatched in power, ruling rightly over the world that only he could make, coming into the world for us. Here's the way Paul puts it. Listen to this text in light of what you've just read through Job. For by him, he's talking about Jesus here, Colossians chapter one. By him, by Jesus, all things were created. Where were you, Job? Jesus was there. Job wasn't. Jesus was there. He marked out the foundations of the earth. He knows where the bases were sunk. He created things. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Job, did you give rise to this morning? No, but Jesus did. That God, he's the one who took on flesh. And in him, in this man, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, not to toy with creatures who don't have a right to expect his care, through him to reconcile those creatures to himself. The same creatures who don't even have a breath that they can claim as their own. Those same creatures who turn against God every day that they've ever lived, who love things other than God, who've taken the gifts that he's given and made gods of them. Those people, us, This God came to reconcile in heaven, all things on heaven, on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's come to take those who were alienated, doing evil deeds, and reconcile them by his body. He's come to make us holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, the incarnation sacrifice of Jesus doesn't explain the specifics of your pain. There's always going to be a lot that's outside of your street lamp. But it does make one thing clear. The God of Job can turn all things to good for those who trust in him. He has that power. And the God of Job has come to us for us to show us that's exactly what he wants to do. And from the love of this God, nothing can separate those who trust him. Not trial, distress, nakedness, danger, sword, not heights, not depths, not even the gates of death. This God reigns over all. He won't be domesticated. He won't be fully brought under the light that we can see. But this God loves you. So savor it, even in your pain. Father, we pray that you would help us to see your word to us as sweet as rest, as good and right. 
I pray that you would give us the comfort you meant these words to give us. Your Spirit's got to open our hearts to, to, to love what you've written. We pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.